Hello and welcome along to Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge, uh, the podcast that gets us closer to the action with sporting professionals. Today, I'm delighted to welcome uh, a man with a great story to tell, or in fact, loads of great stories to tell after a career in rugby league that took him to international level, took him to Australia and won him every domestic honour um, that was possible to win. Uh, loads of highs, uh, also a few lows for him to tell us about as well, and some controversial stories. Um, I'm sure that you'll agree uh, Richard Mathers is a great guest for us to have on Sporting Lives. Now, Richard, it always seems a bit trite uh, when we start these things uh, to say, hi, how are you? But things have not been great for you in the last couple of months. We had to postpone this podcast, of course, uh, in the first place. Um, we've had to wait a couple of months to get you in because of a pretty horrific accident. Tell us more. Firstly, thank you for the very kind introduction. Yes, uh, I had, a, had an accident where I got hit uh, off um, my bike uh, by a car uh, nine weeks ago now. So I'm training for an Ironman in September. So I, uh, I sort of planned my route to, uh, to get up and get, get out on the bike early at half past five, uh, nine weeks ago and uh, and I was on a on a roundabout coming on a roundabout past the junction. Um, car didn't stop and uh, hit me clean off the car. Uh, uh, sorry, clean clean off the bike. Um, very very lucky. Uh, sort of hit behind the saddle and uh, took the back wheel off. Um, but then subsequently suffered uh, what's been diagnosed diagnosed as significant brain trauma and concussion so it's been a rough few, few weeks mate but uh i'm on the mend and uh and it's great to be here uh, at risk of um and i certainly don't want to make fun of any of that but you're sounding as clear as ever uh, has that knocked a bit of sense into you yeah i think if you yeah i think if you ask people who know me it probably would knock a bit of sense into <laughs> me but uh yeah, it was it was a funny one. Um, you know, you, you you just as you say kindly introduced me, me my rugby career, but in all the time that I'd played, I'd never su suffered what I'd consider a serious concussion or something that I'd just just experienced. Um, I had fifteen rugby related operations, um, but nothing is. I can genuinely say nothing as as serious as what I'd just been through, um, and. It, so I use the analogy of I'd have genuinely rather broken my arm because I know that you're in a pot for six weeks um, and you know what you're buying with, but with your brain and the concussion and um, you sort of, you're blind to it really. Um, so yeah, I was, you know, really well looked after by uh, the, the NHS and the neurology department there. Um, but it was the unknowing, Jonathan, that was uh, the scary part and, um, you know, you know, it was you know relive, reliving the what could have been. That was you know that that was also a bit of a challenge. But nine weeks on, um, you know, you you were very kind to keep in touch and, and keep checking in um, across that time. But uh, as of sort of as of every, every week's gone on, uh, I think you know I've definitely improved. Very very serious stuff, and I know I did make a little bit of a joke about it, but you know that. Um that was genuinely a little bit of fun and uh you know i was genuinely in touch with you across yeah, you all were, that yeah. not because of this but because you just think you know i would hate something like that to happen yeah. to me or somebody close to me yeah. and it sounded horrific um so you know when you called me that day when we were about to record this first time and said i'm just reversing into a parking space at uh, lgi yeah going for ct scans uh, and yeah you know, i was kind of at the other end of the phone with the, the jaw having dropped so um 
So great that you're you're here with us uh, in one piece, apparently. Yes. Um, and we can now look back on some great times and some tough times as well. Yep. Um, as I've said. So um, let's let's start at the beginning if we can. Um, we don't want to do this uh, particularly chronologically. Let's jump about if we can as things occur to us. But it's a great way to start uh, in terms of your your rugby playing interest um, and your general sporting interest. So you were born uh, in East End Park, yep. uh, just a mile mile and a half or so up the road from this uh, centre of uh, Leeds that we're recording this. Um, and you got interested in rugby league clearly at a very early age. You want to take us just through those those formative steps with the Milford Marlins and with um, with East End Park, yeah. East Leeds. Yeah. So growing up in in, in East End Park, um, it was kind of um, the main sport, if you like. Uh, the East Leeds uh, club uh, was founded in sort of nineteen seventy nine and was very much the the heart of the community. Um, Anyone who knows Eastern Park, I'm an Eastern Park lad. It's you know it's not the nicest area in the world, and um, you sort of could have chose to go down one path or or another. Uh, and a lot of my friends and my dad played rugby as well um, for the U Tree and some of the older older pubs, and uh, just got encouraged to go down at eight years old, and uh, and just fell in love with it. I went down. Um, and Dan, you know, it's produced some great players in Danny Maguire, Leroy River, uh, to name just a couple. Um, and it was just one of those things where, uh, you know, it was, uh, you'd train sort of Tuesday, Thursday, play on a Saturday and just just fell in love with the game straight away. I think the the camaraderie and, the, you know, the I, I, I guess, you know, the, the structure giving you something to, to look forward to uh, of a week because, as I say, it wasn't the you know the, the the easiest place to grow up. You could you could easily find yourself into into trouble. So it started started at eight and then played all the way through um, up until about fourteen. It was when I went to Milford, um, and the only reason why I went and Milford was a great club. Um, we had a fantastic side, um, but at East Leeds at the time at the under fourteens they didn't have a, an under fifteens. Um, and they wanted us to start playing like 18, 17s, 18s, and which is far too much of a jump at, at that age. Um, so um, I had some friends who played for Milford and my dad was friends with their coach. And then they were like the, the standout side. They had uh, Dwayne Barker, Dean Ripley, Ryan Bailey, Jermaine Ray. Um, we were a real superstar side. And um, some, some great, tales of, of Milford we actually played we, we were that good we we um, played Lancashire schoolboys offered you know uh, our coach offered um, offered us to, to play against Lancashire schoolboys at Headingley uh, as a bit of a test and it probably wouldn't happen now but as a bit of an exhibition game and we just wiped the floor with them and then sort of from there you, from an early age you kind of knew that that was a path that I'd, I'd like to take. You, you know, you had a bit of success early doors um, from a playing point of view, and it's very different now um, than to now in terms of, you know, there was a lot of scouts around watching and chatting to mums and dads. And um, from a very early age, I, I, you know, I realised it was probably a career for me. If it's what you want to do, that that's one thing. And if you've got the talent, that's another thing. Um, there's a lot of debate, isn't there, in sport about you know how much the makeup of a professional or a great player is in terms of uh, skill um, and and work ethic. When you're winning trophies and you're beating teams like Lancashire with a you know a so-called all-star side from Leeds, 
and you want to take that next step up, there's going to be some people who who want it to be easy all the time, who, who never quite get there because you know they think it's always yeah. going to be easy and they're not up for the challenge. So how did you how did that translate for you when you were making that step up then when you when you got the offers from the Leedses and the the Wiggins and the Warringtons? I think yeah. it was. Yeah, so it's it's a really good question. Um, and I'm a firm believer is, you know, talent only takes you so far. And I don't mean it to sound in a, in a corny or a, or a soundbite where I was very self-aware that, um, you know, it, talent only took you so far. Like I was a real student of the game. So I'd, I'd you know, I'd pester my dad to record games and take me to, to Weddingly. And, you know, I'd never, I'd never watch a game. I'd just watch fullbacks or standoffs or, um, but, you know, I always knew that, you know, for every one of me, there'd be another five or six fighting for your spot. And, and you're quite right, out of that Milford side, there were probably only three or four of us that that made it. Um, so, yeah, it was it was having that self-awareness of, and, and, and at an early age, I think rugby league is, um, it, it matures you quite quickly uh, in terms of your lifestyle choices and, um, you know, the decisions that you make. And I sort of made that and sort of had that emotional intelligence, if you like, very early doors that if you want to, I knew I was talented. Uh, I wasn't the biggest, strongest, fastest, but I knew I had something because Wigan, Leeds, Warrington, you know, all came in for me at 13 years old um, and offered some saying, you know, I'm happy to talk about if you if you like, but and that's what, uh, some crazy, um, crazy money back then. Um, but then that's when it sort of started being serious. So Leeds um, at the time always signed the best kids because it were Leeds and they had the reputation as I do now, everybody, it was more of a privilege that Leeds wanted to sign you. Um, but then Wigan made a massive fuss. Um, Eric Hawley, who signed Jason Robinson, you know, you know, great, lovely, lovely gentleman. He, to, he um, took me, myself, my mum and my dad over to watch Wigan and St. Helens on Boxing Day um, at the old Central Park. Um, we sat in the boardroom with Maurice Lindsay and, and then on the way out, he said, right, took us to the club shop. He said, odd. Oh, take anything you want so like my, my dad got like <laughs> sub jacket and like training gear and stuff and then um i actually signed for warrington um so warrington i, I was always i always went a, a little bit against the grain uh, and i think that you know we'll get on to that throughout my career i always was was a little bit different i always wanted to try something i thought well everyone's signing for leads and you know, so I went, I used to go over to Warrington, my dad, you know, looking back now, my dad used to drive me over twice a week. And then, but I trained with the first team, whereas we lead you up to any stripes and stuff, but they thought that much of me. Um, I remember kicking with Frano Botica and Lee Breers at the time and, and, and Alex Murphy was really, really interested. And um, they offered, they offered us an absolute fortune. Um, at 13 years old and I'm happy to share it with you. So to get the deal done, um, there's uh, the, the head scout called Jim Reader said to me, dad, I want to meet you at Burt Services. And uh, cause they knew I, it was sort of decision time. So we met at Burt Services and uh, we had a coffee and he passed me dad like an envelope. 
So like, I didn't, th- I, you know, I'm 13, I didn't think anything of it, or Bur- Burger King, or we had a McDonald's or whatever. Got back in the car and there were 5,000 pound in this brown in this brown envelope, just as a sweetener <laughs> to uh, to sign. So I was like, well, I said, well, how, come, how much am I, can I have for that? Somebody had me 100 quid, he said, you can buy yourself a pair of rock ports. And, you know, <laughs> and they said, I'll save the rest for when you, you know, for a house or for whenever you, you're ready for when you're 18. But then they put an offer on the table of um, a four-year contract at 13, 60,000 pounds a year and a 10,000 signed on bonus. And I've still got the contract upstairs. And it's, it's mind-boggling to think, knowing what lads get paid now and what I got paid relatively, but it was never sustainable. So that lasted sort of six months. And to, to be fair, I got paid accordingly. But then um, they were in, they weren't the Warrington they were they are, as they are now in terms of like Simon Moran and you know the Wilders yeah. Pool and they nearly got you know they were, they were in financial uh, strife and um, the um, the chief executive uh, a chap called Peter Smith at the time um, asked for a meeting with me my, my, my dad I wasn't present and said look he's, he's on more money than most of you know a lot of our first team players at 13 and we you know we can't play until he's 17 um, can we come to some financial agreement because it's going to send the you know we're going to have to cut these you know these yeah. these large contracts down so my dad sorted that and I, and, I, and I became a free agent then so that had been sort of 14 15 and then the sort of circus started again if you like right. and I was like dad I'd, I've you know I just don't want to you know I don't want to go to Wigan I don't want to you know, I don't want to um have to go through it all again. I just want to enjoy my rugby again. Um, so I didn't start, I, I put, so I went on tour with um, with um, England Academy. Uh, sorry, England Schoolboys. I went on two tours. I went on an England Schoolboys and an England Academy. And I was the only player not to sign, of sign for a professional club. So um, went out to Australia. It was fantastic, absolutely fantastic tour. And um, Brisbane Broncos were, were interested. Um, my dad was telling the tale. I had a couple of beers with my dad on Sunday, and my dad he loves he loves the tale. My dad and and the, and the head scout for Brisbane Broncos was interested, but it just it didn't work out. And then I came back, and then um, just yeah, decided to sign for Leeds, and saw the rest is is history. But it, it was funny because like if you if you look at the regulations and and it, and it's right uh, in this day and age in terms of scholarships and you know manipulating young players and it wasn't like that it was like the wild wild west <laughs> back back then right. um but yeah that's how i sort of got into the professional ranks and and uh, am i right in um thinking that you started when you started as a junior you were playing at standoff alongside a bloke who became quite a good one yeah well that, yeah it's his, it's his bloody fault why i ended up playing <laughs> fullback so dan is danny mcguire who are you talking to who are you talking about i'll name him um so dan is a year older than me and but i always played a year above um so i always played with danny rob uh chev and and it came to um leeds trials uh, yorkshire trials and i was looking so you had to back in them days you had to put your preferred position and the second position so i'm thinking well because when, when i played my own age group i played standoff but then when I played above, I was like, well, I ain't gonna play standoff in front of him. So I just put full back. 
because I looked because I looked at the sheet and I thought, well, I, I did a bit of totting up, so there were like maybe like six wingers, five centers, and I thought, well, there's only another fullback, so I put fullback, <laughs> and then we played like an A and a B team, and and that's. And then I played a fullback ever since. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so it did me a favour. So I managed to get a career. So, so direct competition with your best pal. What, yeah. what, what was it like in those um, those early years at Leeds? I mean, as somebody who's watched the club since the 70s. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think anybody who knows um, rugby league and uh, has heard me do a commentary or, or seen a, a written report would know that I'm a rugby league fan per se, but yeah. my club would be... Would be Leeds. I was a season ticket holder back in the day. Watched the John Holmeses. Uh, my own on-field rugby league hero was Gary Schofield, um, and you know all the history of, of all that that time. The trophies under the the Holmes era with all the lads who did what they did. Different era, yes. different game. That sort of transition period into the nineties, in towards Super League, where Leeds had the Scoies. They signed some big name players. You can think of loads of those. Ellery obviously been the, the major case in point towards the back end of that. Uh, but they still were winning little or nothing. And then we get this transition into the early part of Super League, first couple of years out of the way, which is not the best. Graham Murray comes in, and then of course um, Daryl Powell, yeah. Tony Smith. Yes. It's there's a transition in terms of well, I think probably Dougie Lawton may have started that with the lads that he put on the books back in his day in the early nineties. Yeah. But a decade later, there's yourself, there's Chev, there's Danny, there's Rob, several other, Kevin Sinfield, obviously. Yeah, um, Jamie Jones. Jamie, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got a group of young lads. There's been a group of young lads around the club for, you know, several years before. What what changed um, at the club, do you think, from from what your experiences have been and from people you've spoken to before to, to launch that so-called yeah. golden generation? Yeah, and it, it's a really good question. And... And I, and I can answer it. I think because we'd all played, you know, for sort of lead school boys, Yorkshire, we dominated all, all Yorkshire selections, all England selections. And it sounds sort of cheesy, but we're all best pals. So we'd all sort of grown up together. We all knew how we all played. But what I will say is before we all got in the first team, the academy had won nine, grand finals straight so there was there was an expectation that you had to win it was just you walked into Lee Rhinos and you had to win and that was led by first of all Kevin Sinfield and Jamie Jones and then Dave Wrench and you know uh, Danny Ward and then it was passed down and then it was like once it was your turn and your year it was just there was no negotiation um, you had to win it but what drove that was, while we were all best mates, we were all ultra competitive. And we all wanted, one, it was our club. We're all from Leeds. We're all from similar backgrounds. Um, but we we all knew, we all knew. I think there's a couple of defining moments where we all sort of looked at each other, that cluster of thinking, where, where the next, conveyor belt so what they used to do was they used to play um the first team against the academy so the old guard of dean lawford ryan sheridan so on and so forth and, and that uh cal pratt andy they'd all and then they'd just stick r17 uh, r13 against their best 13 and we used to just tear them apart um and we'd genuinely just tear them apart 
and we all sort of thought well hang on a minute you know you, mm. you, we've got a chance and they used to wait us you know they, they, them old boys because they knew we were ready to t take their spots I remember once um, we'd literally I think they'd, they'd called the game off because it, it got that bad uh, in terms of uh, embarrassing and um, Ryan Sheridan kicked Danny Maguire full on in the face out of frustration um, because obviously he was after his spot and they'd scuffle for a ball and he kicked him full on and then we'd all we'd all run in you know like we're all we're only babies but it was like a changing of the guard and it was a bit it was a bit old school back then where they had the first team changing rooms and you weren't allowed in the first team changing rooms unless you'd played for the first team but we were all like a band of brothers we were like well sod them you know where we'll just get changed in the rubbish changing rooms because we're gonna take their places anyway so it was like it's easy to look back we, you, we didn't we didn't consciously think at the time but there was that belief that I can sit back now at 37 and reflect um, but then underpinning all that we had great academy coaches Stuart Wilkinson Daryl Daryl Powell yep. before he got the head coach's job Mick Cook Steve Walsh, who was a conditioner, put hours and hours and hours. The, we used to run us like dogs around the hills, and the you know mental resilience and you know building that. It sounds like a, a sort of um, montage from Rocky. They say in the build up to uh, to the big fight, or in, in your case, the the big career. Yeah. So if we run that on, then um, and I did say we'll try and avoid total chronology, no, but, no, but let's yeah. but let's think about the start of the professional career because. You're at Leeds, but then, in, ironically, you, you go on loan to Warrington, where you make your, your first senior appearance. Yeah, um, you're back at Headingley, and uh, you you make your debut against Saints um, in a game that you lose on the wing, oh, replacing Kel Pratt. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and you played four matches for the Rhinos that season, wearing the number thirty shirt. Yeah. on the wing, um, it feels a bit different to Warrington because you, you're at a big club, Leeds, and there's people are probably thinking, oh, there's that young Mallers on the wing. Yeah, I did all right tonight. You know, that's you know, you know, yeah, the sort of comment yeah, yeah. that you're probably going to get. What I want to know really about that first period, and you can give us your thoughts on your debut if you like, but it's more about the attitude at the club. You know, when I'm saying what changed, there were there were lots of moans I seem to remember around and about on the quiet, you know, people talking behind their hands about about those senior players and some yeah. attitude issues. Now you're telling us you're here to tell us you know, tell us straight, what, what was the case? Yeah, I think, you know, so that was 2002. Two. Um, and it was very much that the old guard knew they were on the way out and they didn't like, not, and they didn't like these young, brash, confident, um, backed by the club, because we weren't, it, weren't, it wasn't just as one of two talented players. It was, eight nine ten and it was it was the that that generation um were you know probably bitter and yeah bitter and twisted that they knew they were they were going out uh, or getting pushed out uh by the exception of francis cummins who put his arm around us all and and, and, were, and were fantastic but me memories of them four games for Leeds and number 30 playing on the wing outside Key Senior, which thankfully, because it was massive, I knew I'd be looked after. Um, and But my, my sort of memories are, are not, you know, 
I was really proud to make my debut, really proud to play at Edinley in front of where I'd always wanted to play for. But there were no real camaraderie and, you know, mm. it was all very much, like you say, looking after number one and how much can I get and if I'm going to get paid out. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until we'd all got through together and then, but so they'd be like, you know, Rob and Danny would get through and then Chev and then Mike Calderwood and then uh, Jamie Jones and, and Kev were always brilliant anyway. But it wasn't until then we got, we started overtaking them in numbers that it sort of became our way. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was sort of from 2000 to 2002. I'd, I'd argue uh, strongly it was toxic and, and, and the results probably reflected that. And what what I will say is, and, go on, I'm, and, I've, and I've gone on record before, what unbelievable foresight and balls by Gary Everington and Daryl Powell to get rid of what were perceived as Deadwood, an expensive Deadwood, um, to give us all a chance because it could it could have gone one on one way or the other, but they really believed in this crop of young players, and that they knew that there might be a little bit of heart, heartache and some results might not go the way they want straight away, but the the foresight and the the nerves because Leeds Leeds you you know as you as you said it's not a small club it's the expectation is to win. Um, you know, there's 20,000 fans there. It's a massive club, always has been. To have the goal to get rid of some established internationals and give, you know, number 30 a go and number 29 a go with a view that it is going to be a bumpy road. Um, you know, you, you, you can't underestimate the... Uh, the uh, magnitude of Daryl's and Gary Everington's foresight, and and you look at those players who went at the time, and th there's a there's a sort of juxtaposition of opinion of derision. They're never going to win, as Alan Hansen famously said about whatever it was, Man U all those never, years ago. Never, never win anything with a bunch of kids, and then there's the other people um, who say no, they've got to go because they're not winning trophies because of these people. So the kids can't do any worse. Was the type of attitude. Yeah. So. Um, you were probably in one camp or the other as a Leeds fan at the time, and then you roll it on to 2003, and suddenly we start to see this come to fruition. Doesn't quite happen for Daryl Powell. He finished second in Super League that year. I think Gary Connolly's um, joined the club. Yep. By then, he's playing at... Um, Lance Todd at, at Cardiff. Yeah, yep. playing full-back. Uh, I mean, talk, talk to us about Gary Connolly playing full-back because you're you're there waiting in the wings yeah, for that fuming. opportunity. Yeah, fuming. I was fuming, but... But what I will say is what an absolute gentleman he was. Um, so I'd got the taste in 2002. Um, ben Walker did signed on massive money. The best trainer you've ever seen come play. Uh, lo lovely guy, but timid as a cat. Um, Franny were coming towards the back end of his career. Uh, so I'd had a little taste on the wing. So I'm thinking... You know, 2003, I could have me, me shot here. Then they signed Gary Connolly. I'm like, either they don't rate me. But again, it was done with me in mind. The need, not just me, but with the team in mind, but with my development in mind. And it was invaluable that that 2003 season. Um, just been around him. I was in awe of him. You know, I've grown, grown I've been to Wembley to watch him play for Great Britain. Um, 
and he was at a stage of his career where he'd achieved everything he could have achieved. He wanted to still be successful, but also he wasn't one of those old pros who he knew I was snapping his heels. Like I trained 100 miles an hour, I was enthusiastic. And you know, he was, this is a famous story. So at Kirkstall, when it was, um, when it was cold or the, uh, the main pitch, which we call Wembley, uh, we'd have to go and train over at Abbey Field. So we'd all get together and we'd all have to jog over together. Not Gary, he used to get in his Cherokee gloves on and drive and park <laughs> at the back of the sticks and train, which Tony, it didn't last long with Tony. Um, but um, in terms of influence, he, he spent um, as much time, I, well, I just shadowed him, but equally off the field as well. So, um, we had some good nights out, you know, his, his nickname was Lager, um, <laughs> Gary Lager. Um, so it's, you know, but just all, all round really, um, in terms of development and yeah, it was, it was brilliant. And then obviously at the end of that season, Daryl left and I think it's tough on Daryl because we finished second, we played some great rugby. We got beat in the Challenge Cup final, but the problem looking should he or shouldn't he got sacked no oh take the two <laughs> Kev, i, I yeah. can ask everybody who comes in that one who was in that final yeah. i think i asked franny already yes let's yeah. carry on yes i didn't play so i can say uh yes i thought i should have done but um with daryl i think going back to the old generation if you like he'd played with too many of them to have so he had he had us all gooey eyed and do whatever he wanted um but i think there was a realization that to take us this that group to the next step um they had to be changed we were all gutted because we you know we all i think i still think the world of Darryl gave me my debut and he was a great coach but i think there were too many of the old guard who'd played with him where that professional and a, a dis you yeah. know, a, a, you know, a bit of blurred lines. So the club made the decision to sign Tony Smith. So, so it maybe needed that that discipline, disciplinarian that we're always told Tony is to, to come in and change it. Just before we talk, Tony. Um, so you say you think Kev should have taken that kick a Was that mentioned in the dressing room after what? What was? What I was wasn't like? there. No, you, I didn't go. You I didn't even go. No, I, 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 I did travel, but I was I wasn't uh, with a right. with a team. So I just uh, I, I think I was on the academy bus. But uh, what do you think? Do you think you should have took the two? I've, I've probably never really felt too strongly about it either way because if he scores a try, yeah, uh, you know, you so it's some box, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But um, it's the question that's always that's always asked, isn't it? Um, so Tony comes in, uh, and and obviously, you know, still I know you're still great pals with the man now. Uh, what a job he did for the club, and he just took that that group of players who were yeah. starting to make their way and molded him into something very special. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you'll have spoke, spoken to both Tony and enough people over your time, Jonathan, to, to realize the impact he had uh, on the club. But just to be fair, when it first got announced, we were all going to Flamingol and we were doing a, a fan day and uh, we always used to, all the first team would go and the, you know, the junior members would, would go to Flamingo Land and it got announced or we got told on the bus. I'm like, who's Tony Smith? Never, you know, who's Tony? He cut to Dudersfield, like, pretty much. So I'm like, a bit pessimistic. 
but it came in and we were good players, talented, but it came in and taught us things that you just had not even thought about how to catch a ball, which sounds ridiculous. Um, how to, you know, how to have your feet a certain way. And to summarise it without going through each bit, like minute detail of every single player, marker player, kick pressure to the point of, you know, where your feet need to be at what point. Um, and but, do, do these little, I mean, did you see this work on the oh, field? Like do these that, little margins like that, work? Yeah, 100%. We, and we all thought he was a bit of a mad scientist at the start and he's got a funny aura. Um, we're all scared to death of him. Absolutely scared to death of him. I still get nervous if my phone rings now and it's, I still get nervous now. Um, but he had an innate ability to um, hold a room, but also he could say something to me and he knew what made my buttons tick or he'd say something to you completely different. When he could, but he knew it, it was a very, very intelligent man in terms of the psychological side of it. But he brought things in um, like yoga, like catching tennis balls, hand-eye coordination, like stuff like, um, like you just assume we're bonkers. But it, it, but it grew a belief because we could see we were getting bigger, stronger, faster, more skillful. Um, and the way he wanted us to play and the way the style he wanted us to play suited what we had. We were big, strong, fast, fit, youthful. And he just said, just play, because he said he'd just blow teams away. Um, and we just all jumped on board with it. Um, so, so he was more of a um, coaching some some different stuff that, that helped add little ex extra bits to your game, um, but not a hard and fast game plan type coach. Yeah. More about trusting in your trusting. skills. If you've done everything you can in training, I trust you guys yeah. in 17 to go out there on the field and play it as you see yeah. it. Two, two things were, uh, if you see it, play it. If you if you see it and you mess up, you defend that next set, you get that ball back. But I trust you to... So in this day and age, and I, and I don't like to sit here as an explorer back in my day, but it's very, very structured in terms of, you know, there's lead runners and this, that and other. We were blessed we had on the left-hand side, Dana Maguire, Ali Lawatiti, Keith Senior, uh, Franny Cummins. On the right-hand side, you have Chef Walker, Dave Fern, and Mark Calderwood. Just give them the ball uh, and follow them. Matt Diskin at, at dummy half. I'll throw myself in there running round. Um, but he trusted us, yes. Uh, but he taught us a fundamental skills which are overlooked really in terms of like catching the ball off your chest because if you catch a ball on your chest you can't pass it as quick which sounds absolutely basic but it just revolutionised um, how we played uh, encouraging us to offload so we practice um, being in awkward positions but we'd, have, we'd be only allowed to hold the ball in one hand you know Ali Lawatiti mm. in offload and you, if you think back of some of the rugby we played in 04 and 05 would, I don't, I don't think it's been played since no. like that. Um, but um, and the other thing was um, in terms of the defence is is absolute non-negotiable. Was if they make a break or they score a try, there, there has to be more rhino shirts in the picture than theirs, and I can live with that. So. If they make a break and there's only me chasing back and there's four of them, he used to go absolutely 
potty. Um, yeah, and so but then that built sort of the you know the 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 the, the expectation, the pressure, and the other thing was what he, what he also brought in was no one was dispensable. So when I so when he, his first year, Gary Connolly was first choice fullback. I didn't make my first appearance until round two when Gary got injured. Um, so I'm sort of kicking me heels, like loving it, absolutely loving it, but thinking, you know, Gary's got another year. I, I'm ready now. I'm ready. I've done, a, I've learnt loads. I'm fit. I'm strong. And then Gary got injured, unfortunately for him. And I remember Tony saying to me, walking out with Curtis, he said, you're playing this week. And he said, the shirt's yours as long as you deserve it. So it's yours to keep as long as you deserve it. And I played every game ever since. Good to his word. Um, and I mean, you were saying he got, it was, it was, you know, absolutely uh, fuming if there were less Leeds players in the picture than, than the opposition on those sort of occasions. I was going to say, what what annoyed him? What got to him? What made him feel scary then? Um, do you know what he wanted us to be? He wanted us to be good people. So manners, being on time, how he spoke to people, respectful. He used to lose, lose his temper fairly rapidly um you know if you you know if you were if you were late to meetings or you walk past a piece of rubbish that were left on the floor it's like they're not our standards or if you you know if you were rude or if you didn't say please and thank you when you got your lunch those things it, it really it wasn't just a rugby league coach it really turned us from boys into men but Good, good men, good people. I'd like to think you know it turned us into good people, um, and but that transferred onto the field. I think you know because then your habits are, you live. It, it was very much of how you live your day to day, how you live your life day to day translates onto the field, and it just gives us just this innate confidence. And genuinely, in them few years, you, and, and it may sound really flippant this. I turn up to the games and I just knew we wouldn't get beat. Whereas, you know, before and since, you sometimes turn up and think, mm. it could be. we just had this, we just knew we wouldn't get beat. And it's a great feeling and people watching and listening, uh, I'm sure who, whatever team you've played in, you'll identify with that if you've played in a successful team. I know even at amateur level, you know, I felt that with some of the cricket teams I've played in, for example. You are, by the way, watching Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge, my special guest, uh, Richard Mallers. Um, and we're looking back on his great um, rugby league career and well as you can hear as you can see some uh, fantastic stories you can get in touch by the way with suggestions for future guests on jonathan doidge at hotmail.com please do hit subscribe whether you're watching this on youtube or whether you are listening on podbean or itunes or spotify or whatever forum it is you've chosen uh, and you can also follow me on at sporting lives one uh, please do give the podcast a follow um it's followers and subscribers that uh, that make it count Yes, give um, it a follow. So, uh, back to uh, back to two thousand and four in a moment because before two thousand and four, there's something pretty pretty difficult happens yeah. in your life. Uh, you lose your mum over over Christmas two thousand and three. Um, uh, without wanting to to drag up some pretty um, no, no, awful no. awful memories like Piers Morgan, you're going to get me to cry. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but you know, Christmas Eve. Yeah. Um, it's birthday boxing, boxing day there. you're yeah. only a 19 year old lad you, you're just setting out on this fantastic rugby league career 
yes, you've still got your dad. You want We all want our parents to be there, support us. Yeah. As a parent yourself now, you understand what it's like for the parents as well. So to lose your mum at that stage must have been absolutely crushing when she could have seen so much more of you. Yeah, it was, yeah, goes without saying, it was a really, really, really tough time. Uh, she got diagnosed with cancer at 43. Um, and it was incurable. It was a sort of a tumor in between a lung and a heart, which was inoperable. She went through chemo therapy and, you know, sort of saw the worst of, you know, a pain. Um, and yeah, she passed away Christmas Eve, 2003. She was in St. Gemma's on and off for a sort of six months, but then that sort of last three weeks up until Christmas, we, she was really, really, really poorly. Um, and as you can imagine, we were sort of sat behind, uh, sat by a bed uh, every day. And um, we'd just done the captain's run um, on the on the Christmas Eve morning, obviously have Christmas day off, play boxing. Yeah, so sorry, with it being, I don't mean only a boxing day game, but it's it's not as important as a, as a usual game. So it was only half an hour. I remember coming off and saying, you better get up here ASAP. Um, managed to get there just in time uh, to say my goodbyes. And um, yeah, she uh, went, went peacefully at St. Gemma's. Um, but yeah, just, just heartbreaking at 19, you, you know, it's sort of, you know, on one side, people assume you've got it all, uh, but on the other side, you know, you've, you've, you've lost your mum, uh, whether you, regardless of what age, but she was such a, massive influence in my life and you know just you know looking back now what she's probably you know she missed me playing at Wembley and at you know all the big games um and then yeah in a boxing in a birthday on boxing day which um coincided with Leeds playing that day as well and I just and I played um so I was too upset to ring um Tony so my dad rang Tony and told him about my mum. And he said he wants to play. And Tony was like, and he said, no, no, he wants to play for his mum. I can't tell you, I can't tell you anything about the game. I can't remember anything. I can't remember how, I think I got subbed, but I can't remember anything. But I played in her honour because I knew she'd have wanted me to do that. And as a kid, when, and it was a really, really big thing to get picked to play on Boxing Day. That you know, you knew if you got picked to play on Boxing Day, you uh, you know you were in for a good shout that season. Um, and I was like, well, you know, she'd want me to play in that for her, but also she'd want me to play so I don't miss um, the you know the opportunity that I might might bring itself. But yeah, it was a a, a, a tough time. Um, but in a lot of ways, I guess it kind of forged my resilience as a, as a person having to deal with death of my mum. My dad lived in Spain at the time, so I was effectively on my own from 19. And I had to do a lot of growing up very quickly. How did that affect you? I mean, you're talking, as you say, Christmas season starts then February time, probably was yeah. it still something like that? It's still been March, I'm not sure, but not long anyway. And you're into a full season, which ends up being a brilliant season. Yeah. but. I mean, did did you was there any temptation for you to think, you know what, 
there's more to life than rugby league. Or, no, you know. it's me, Jonathan. I absolutely, no, no, you know, I think if you asked anybody who knew me from day one to day I retired, I was always a great trainer anyway, but it was my saviour, you know, going to Kirksall and training and playing and having that structure, like I was living in Eastern Park by myself. Um, at 19 years old, it literally could have gone one way or another. Um, and it was, I just threw myself into my rugby. Um, and ironically, I ended up being one of the best years professionally that the club, myself, had ever had. But it was, um, it was probably a welcome distraction and it was the only way I could deal with it. Um, and I probably didn't really grieve um, properly because I threw myself into the rugby side of it for a good few years after. Great stuff then from Richard Mathers in part one. Please do click subscribe to receive parts two and three and all the rest of our Sporting Life podcasts for free. Um, parts two and three, well, Richard tells us all about the glory years, of course, uh, at Headingley with the Leeds Rhinos, his uh, foray down under uh, and many other uh, fantastic stories, including the inside on what happened at Castleford. So do stick with Sporting Lives for that. We'll be back with uh, part two of Richard Mathers very soon.